You're listening to Red Center, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Hello and welcome to this week's Red Centre. I'm Mike Seymour, joined by Jason Wingrove in a rather unusual place this time. We've got iPads playing Sorry. house episodes. And How are we? How are you, Jason? Yes, I'm very well. Thank you, mate. Very good. What's happening? Uh, so we're, um, we're getting ready for a shoot, or actually a 3D shoot coming up uh, this weekend. So we're actually not in our normal studio, so if the sound's a bit different, we uh, apologise. But um, uh, that's what's happening. Um, so, Jace, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. Very well. Very relaxed. So there's some interesting stuff in the news this week, um, and we've got a good uh, red room for you. Uh, mm. Actually, we thought we'd investigate the... Uh, now, I think it's pronounced Weisscam because it's uh, spelt with a W but said by Germans. Right. Uh, Weisscam, yeah. Yes. It's the second generation of their high-speed camera. And uh, I got to um, uh, talk to the guys, and uh, we've got that interview coming up later in the show, which is kind of interesting. There's uh, some interesting workflow things that these guys are doing. Uh, but also, I think it rounds out. We, we had a look at the Phantom before, and um, I know you're interested in using some high-speed uh, digital footage on a documentary. I think yeah. Yeah, definitely. I'm keen to. Lots of water involved, and, uh, yeah, lo- love to get one. I don't know how close I'm going to be able to get... Uh, these extremely expensive high-speed cameras to the water I'm interested in shooting, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, it'd be awesome. It's just something beautiful about the high-speed, as we, as we know. Just, uh, it's like another world. But before we get on to that interview, which is coming up later in the show, we're going to jump to... Um, actually, let's, let's do news first, then I want to do some, uh, some corrections and email stuff. But let's start with the news. And now, the Red Center News. Yeah, OK, well, I mean, the first... Big news is that the uh, the final episode of uh, this season's of House finally came out. Uh, Help me was the final episode, which is great. And uh, I've seen it. You've seen it, haven't you, Mike? I, I have. I I got the HD. Um a copy of the HD version. Yeah. Uh, basically, so I could look at it and analyze it and mm-hmm. uh, and see what I thought. And um, I have to say that without a doubt, if you had to summarize. Your reaction, it'd be stunning, I think. Yeah, it's utterly stunning. And it's one of those great uh, examples of actually the right gear for the job. You know, I mean, what they've done is used it for the, for the perfect application. Uh, if you've not seen the, app, uh, the episode yet, but it's uh, essentially a collapsed building, I think. Uh, yeah, there's a collapsed, uh, collapsed building. building and it's all essentially uh, under rubble. And a lot of the areas where they were shooting, they literally only had like a foot and a half to sort of crawl space to get through. And what was fantastic about it is that they could really get the DSLRs in there. And it really captured that sort of uh, claustrophobic kind of atmosphere. And it was just really added added to the whole feeling of the app. Apart from the fact that it just looked gorgeous, it was just, you know, the right tool for the job. Um, I I totally agree with you, though I'd have to say I thought it was uh, perhaps most creatively valid. Uh, I I agree technically that was the case, but creatively valid in the end sequence where Mm. it wasn't a restriction of space so much as it was an isolation of a character emotionally. Um, And again, it's not not giving the story away because uh, we hope you've had a chance to see it, but the main character, House, is is completely isolated uh, in the sense of emotionally isolated. He's he's very much uh, cut adrift. It's the end of the season, and um, mm. for those of you that have listened to even the DOD here at FX Guide, you know I'm a big fan of House for two reasons. One, because of this type of stuff, and also, secondly, look, I do think they take risks. Um, this character in this season started out in a... Uh, in a, well, I'm going to say a mental institution, but that conjures up the idea of being some horrific place with um, tortured uh, souls and, um, and horror movies. And this is actually, a, if you like, a healthy, well-run medical institution that, um, that helps him get back on his feet. And those first two episodes, very uncharacteristic for the, 
the other five series, but also really, really interesting. And now we're at the end of the series, he's had a huge character arc, and he really has been cut adrift, and he's back facing the crisis that got him into that institution at the beginning of the series. Yeah. And so uh, the reason I say creatively valid is because it's so shallow, the depth of feel. It's mm. so in tune with the lighting and the performance from... Um, it's so very intimate, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't it seen in the end of, in the bathroom... Um, He's on the floor. Where you're, yeah, like, sitting on the floor and the camera's what feels like only about, you know, a, a foot or two away from his face and it's oh, such shallow depth, you really do feel quite... Uh, almost like you're inside his head. Uh, yeah, it's... And, and there's actually a perfect, line he perfect. says there where he says, how do I know I'm not hallucinating? Um, and so to have that line mm. have the gravitas that it does, yeah. you have to, as the audience, almost believe that maybe this is. Yeah. And I certainly did. I said that to my wife before he said that line. Yeah, I said, he's going to wake up or whatever. Yeah, is he just, has he taken the Vicodin and he's tripping? Mm. Um, and then about two seconds later he says, am I, and I have another hallucination. Because they'd set that up so well in my mind because of the cinematography, which was so well uh, serving the story. Mm. Um, mm. No, it was perfect. I mean, what, the other thing that came out from that uh, after the post-shoot was... I mean, there's been a lot of rumours as to whether they're going to continue using the cameras for next season. But uh, as far as I understand, it really was a bit of a one-off thing. It was... Uh, I, I wish it wasn't, but it was uh, very much for that episode and for, for the, uh, you know, for, that, for the requirements for that, that app. So I think it's... They will continue to use it on one-off, depending on, you know, when the application suits. But I think uh, next season it's back to uh, 35, I guess. I think that... Actually, is it because most episodic televisions have gone to digital? I mean, it's a huge uh, move to digital. Yeah, so actually, I don't know to be honest, I'm not sure far. what they're actually shooting on previously, to be honest. Um, I'm sure we can IMDB that, but whether they're going to be shooting next season on um, on digital or not is another matter. But look, mm. I think the thing for me is that I also heard reports that uh, the actors definitely knew that they were shooting on the 5D because they had you know, much more difficulty hitting their marks mm. in terms of the, the mm. lack of depth of field, giving them less um, room to move. And also the post workflow is, let's face it, not particularly simple on a yeah. 5D. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it still continues to be a pain, particularly on these shows where you're used to. You've got this sort of solid turnaround schedule in place that everything's, you know, everything's geared to when we, when we wrap, when we edit, when we cut, when we get it out. You've got to get it out as you shoot. It's pretty much you're sort of spitting out episodes at the... Uh, um, from the beginning of the season while you're still shooting the end of the season. So it's a very, very tight sort of schedule and, you know, you can't just... This definitely would have been a bit of a stress test, I'm sure. What's interesting, though, is that uh, we haven't seen... I mean, I guess the thing that, that, that I always sort of come back to is what I think drove them to this is that they got something they couldn't get from film mm. rather than they went there because they could get what they had with film and it was just digital. Uh, yeah. And I know that there has been a move for cost reasons, but the, it seemed to me that in this particular case, episodic television notwithstanding, this is very successful. This particular series is hugely um, uh, successful in the ratings. What, what drove them there was they wanted that shallow depth of field and they wanted the smaller physical sort of size of the camera. Mm. It isn't enough to necessarily just say, look, I can do what 35 can do. What they gave them was something that 35 couldn't give them, which was... You know, a 65 millimeter kind of depth of field in a yeah. in a sort of sub 16. I could see how the look, the look could probably be wearying after a while on the viewer, constantly focusing on where the depth is put and being sort of directed as to where to look so much. I mean, but the rest of the app, just standard dialogue stuff, just looks terrific as as well. I mean, for, for me, and I've been saying this for a while, that full frame is the new 
you know, standard 35. To me, full frame is the next is the next standard, and it's just a matter of everybody's wanting to get that look. Everybody, as I guess, as more and more people start shooting their regular home movies on 7D, and um, you know, as, as APS-C, I guess, becomes a more sort of the the, the standard for um, indie film. Higher budget stuff uh, is going to want to have a uh, maybe a, a um, some sort of separation from that. We need to have a sort of. It'd be nice to get a look that establishes a more high end. I don't know. I'm explaining that right. You know, actually, I, I when you mean? said that before, it was like oh God, like 20, 30 episodes ago. You said mm. I, when um, Epic comes out, I want to get the full frame because I want that shot up the field. Mm-hmm. And I at the time discounted your comments a bit, like, well, yeah, because you're just a short depth of field nut and I was thinking for myself it would be enough that we just had uh, the depth of mill of 35mm film but I've got to say I've moved my position has changed I would now agree with you that if I was going to invest you know $30,000 in a big camera rig I'd want to be able to get 5D type uh, shot depth of field if I wanted now here's something really interesting and and I'm I'm not just saying this because it's you but a lot of people come in, this is a really dark episode, it's very dark, emotionally dark, uh, lit-wise, yeah. and that is a good reason to shoot with the 5D, because yeah. low light capabilities, and you know, quite frankly, it works. But mm. I'm going to say that you just shot a test for a documentary, or a pilot for a documentary, mm. which was in full daylight, Yeah, and I think looks magnificent, and I hope I can say this, I hope you don't mind saying this, it's on Vimeo, right? It wasn't private. Yeah, yeah, look, I put a link in the show notes, I, I mean, I've, I've done it now, I've gone and blown it <laughs> Uh, why don't I just wait until I actually finish the freaking doco or whatever? Now I'm just going to be just. I, I, I just one of those things where I thought, oh, I'll just do a bit of a recce, and then I took my camera along and shot the recce, and then oh, hang on, I'll cut this together. Oh, this is looking really good. Perhaps I will make it into a doco. But, but what I think is that that is in full sun. Yeah. And I would have said had I hadn't seen that earlier today. Well, yeah, because if I was shooting in full sun for. Uh, a show like a Lost but in daylight or a you know show that wasn't moody mm. and dark, mm. it would be less relevant to be shooting with that shot of the field. But what you got in that footage test for the um, outdoor, it's a, for those that haven't seen it yet, obviously, there is a sea pool in the sense that it's a swimming pool built by the ocean with the sole design that the water will come over the, the wall and it will have seawater in the pool. It's a, it's a very, very famous Sydney landmark. Yeah. And very safe. It's not like a... No, that's right. It's the, I think it's designed that way. You, yeah. can go, you can go for your coffee in a morning swim and uh, finish breakfast with the same amount of limbs that you started your swim with. <laughs> so, so anyway, and, and uh, so this is what Jason's done. And um, it's on Vimeo. We'll put a show note link in. But in that footage, which you've done black and white, very, very, very good use of the 5D, and yet mm. I wouldn't have said that as a, as a thing this morning if I hadn't have seen that. I would have been like, yeah, well, house dark, it's night, it's it's emotionally demanding, whereas mm. this is actually, your piece is quite sunny I as think, well. I think what, I think what, because I always imagined I would want to do this thing black and white, just like a really nice old classic uh, look, not a sort of funky look, I think just sort of a bit more of a period feel, because I think I'm sort of part of the Docker would be like the heritage and the history and, and the uh, the fact that these seaports have been around for years and years. If it if someone came up with the idea today, they'd just never been made. They'd just be you know technologically it'd be a total pain, be a money waste of money. No one would do it. It's um, they're a really old classic way of doing it before people actually started to have swimming pools in their houses, I guess. So it's a, an old look. I think what's nice about the shallow depth outside is it makes it look like maybe you're shooting medium format or like large looks like large old plate photography so it has a bit of a, a 
that shallow depth outside, which is not where you expect it, has um, has a bit of a, a bit of a vintage feel to it, I guess. Well, look, as we've already diverted from the news, let me divert <laughs> even further. No, no, That's because the first thing on the news. <laughs> no, no, seriously, I'd like to because there's another piece that I think is kind of related to our discussion. So rather than stick to the, um, there's a terrific discussion about PowerPoint and how it's terrible because if the conversation goes in interesting directions, whoever's yes. giving the PowerPoint stops and goes back on. On, so I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go back on script. I'm going to follow the conversation to HD Magazine. Now, HD Magazine's um, actual web address is definitionmagazine.com, slightly confusing. Um, but anyway, the point about this, there was an interesting article published on the 22nd of May uh, entitled Hollywood Squeezes More Out of Canon's 5D Mark II. Now, this is um, a story we didn't have any involvement in writing it or anything, but uh, somebody that... Um, He's very well known in the industry, Sam Nicholson, uh, who has tested a whole lot of cameras. From mm. uh, he's, I've seen him do stuff with Sony with the D21. I've seen him do stuff with um, the Vice Cam and its um, high-speed stuff, and we'll reference that later in this episode. But he also uh, has been shooting with the 5D Mark IIs, and in his case, they're using it for what they call the virtual backlot. Now, his company um, does an enormous amount of episodic television uh, visual effects work, Nothing to do uh, with the idea of shooting the house episode on 5D. His idea is, uh, or his company is, uh, focused just on visual effects. It What's just so company? happens. Stargate Digital. Right. Yeah. I think I seem to remember there was a fantastic, maybe it was on Vimeo, Vimeo or there was a brilliant, uh, just their showreel, I think, was on. Showreel's great. It was just sensational, the virtual backlot stuff that they've done. Yeah. So, um, so why is this uh, being brought up? Well, they've got a whole lot of. Uh, of 5Ds and they use them for doing stuff. In fact, you, you are right. There's a Stargate Digital Virtual Backlot Reel 2009, yeah, and it's that um, is on YouTube. Wow. Yeah, and so great, great company. But Sam is separately a DOP and uh, director. Um, the reason I'm bringing it up, though, is he, uh, interestingly, because he's so influential and worked with so many companies and has done test stuff, as I say, from the F35 to the Alexa to to um, these high-speed cameras. Uh, he, he, in the article, starts discussing Canon. And what I found interesting about this, it moves it from being uh, what you might call, I don't know, um, trivial discussion on yeah, you know, rumor mill. Twitter, rumour mill. Is he, and I'm just going to read from the article. He says that he's been talking directly uh, to Canon, and Canon is listening. And there are some really interesting developments coming over the next 12 months because we're, quote, we're working directly with the engineers in Tokyo. That single line there made me uh, really pay attention. Well, that and the fact that I have a lot of respect for Sam. Because, like, nobody that I know or anybody who is actually really connected has actually ever been really been able to connect with with the Tokyo side of things. There's always been this thing, for, for the, in my understanding, for Canon, that there's the, the big... There's, like, Canon US, and then there's Japan, and never twain will meet, and Canon US just gets whatever Japan decides to make and makes the most of it. And, obviously, Canon has, USA has been making a huge... If you go to their stand at NAB, it was just massive, and it was all about filmmaking, and they had, you know, Vincent Lafrey and, and uh, Bloom, and all those guys were there, and it was all big huge push to, to, for DSLR shooting uh, via, um, for movie shooting and um, you know I think it's just it's still there's the feeling that for, that for Japan that it was just oh there's the design byproduct that oops look what we did 
so it's great now that these sort of maybe these two sides are actually talking and more actually you know the people in charge of actually shooting with this stuff is actually telling the guys that make it what we, what's possible. Now I can't I can't speak for Sam. I can just speak for what was in the article, and it implies in the article that well there are some direct quotes from from Sam, so I assume they are correct, uh, where he's saying that Canon's very interested in, in exploring this area of sort of uh, professional filmmaking with the Canon cameras because basically they not only want people to buy the Canon cameras but they're very interested in getting Canon glass used uh, on these Canon cameras for this kind of stuff and so some of the interesting points that come up in the story and by no way does Sam say this is a checklist for what yeah, it's uh, coming next week. Yeah, yeah nor does quick. the article imply that every single one of these is necessarily canon versus something that maybe was uh, something that uh, could be done by the engineers uh, at Stargate Digital. Nevertheless, mm. this is a list of some of the things that I pulled out of it. Firstly, the idea of canon making some cinema-type lenses, which one presumes, Jace, would be lenses that would have gearing. Yeah, exactly. They're going to let you mark them. They're going to go, obviously, they're still to go the right direction, but they're not going to have end stops. So that you know, like the, at the moment, if you go past the end stop, boom, you lose all your marks on follow focus. Um, yeah, they're going to be proper, like the like the um, Canon compact compact primes, but uh, fast. The idea of Canon doing uncompressed or less compressed 24p output. Yep. Um, one that I, I mean, obviously, it's not these aren't necessarily original, but these are the sort of things that, that they're discussing in this article. Uh, Bluetooth controlled the lenses, so basically, you have a Preston uh, remote. Uh, lens focus control, but without the Preston, because mm. it'd basically be the, f- the the lens's existing motor actually acting as a um, as a focus controller, which I think which somewhat goes against the film style lenses thing, because they're sort of to me that's two separate things. You either have physical hard control of the lens to be able to grab it and move it, or it's you know got motors connected to it. You know, I think that's or it's like a you know hourglass. Maybe if you are then taking that, that off and put your 50 mil 1.8 or whatever on, and then you can do Bluetooth. Anyway, but they're, anyway, they're thinking metadata, about it. Metadata, metadata <laughs> of the lens into the video stream, mm-hmm. uh, syncing of cameras, of course. Now that may or may not for, mean just time code, or it may mean 3D. Yeah, I was going to say it might be very precise uh, syncing for 3D stereoscopic work, which wouldn't mm-hmm. make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, because Canon wants people to use Canon lenses, not Zeiss's. Now, as I say, this is um, an interesting checklist, but in light of the discussion over the house thing, mm. I've got to say, it would be, maybe I'm just, you know, dreaming, but give me sort of three quarters of that, and uh, yeah, especially points one and two, which is Canon making uh, less compressed or uncompressed uh, 24p output that. And more cinema lenses. Absolutely. Oh my God! That's you know if you, this is how far we've gone with a camera yeah. that is really not designed for doing this kind of work. Because I mean, people. I mean, you know, people. As I've said a million times, you know, life will find a way. People have people have have dragged this camera kicking and screaming so far now. They've dragged it kicking and screaming all the way onto the set of major Hollywood things. That uh, you know, there's almost no going back. I mean. It, if they can just improve a few a few key things, then uh, you know it's almost like Canon will now hmm, go. Well, Canon will move a little bit further and a bit further ahead than perhaps another camera that we've been waiting <laughs> on for a while. Well, I just think that I think what what I'm getting out of this conversation is you and I both agree now that we've just really do want to have the option of having. Um, a larger sensor than 35 mil. Yes. And secondly, we're stunned at how far you can take um, the 5D. Yeah. And in, in and if it, there is no universe in which Canon didn't notice that they just shot a house on a 5D, 
And so yeah, they so, gave them the cameras. So obviously they they knew that they did it. So then that begs the they question. They were there on set. Yeah, exactly. yeah exactly. So that begs the question: Where are they going to go with it? And if that list that's in the article um, about Sargate Digital's work is anything to go by, yeah. then it's a pretty rich and interesting uh, future now. You know, you're alluding, of course, to to red and um, and to scarlet. I think um, I think it's there's a bunch of stuff that isn't on that list that could be interesting uh, from red. But by the yep. same token, um, in both cases, they're lists. We we're very keen to see cameras. Look, look, we'll use whatever comes and whenever it comes, and, and we'll use the next best thing until the best best thing comes. There'll always be something new. But we'll use whatever we can whenever we get our hands on it. We're using five Ds because there's no epic, full, there's no full frame, there's no full frame alternative. People are willing to, we've said before, to get that look. They're willing to sort of you know cope with an awful lot of crap to uh, to get it. Speaking of lists, there was a list published on Red User uh, of ten Scarlet questions. Did you? Um, there was there anything in that list that kind of struck out for you as being really interesting? Um, I mean, I think one of the main things we've been wanting to find out for a while was the uh, focal length of the two-thirds scarlet. I mean, I know that the fixed length, the, the scarlet's going to be uh, a little bit behind the, the eight ball, and that was probably one of the other questions that need to be answered. Um, it was mainly, what's the lens going to be, and when are we going to see it, or you know, how much further beyond past epic uh, is is it going to be? Um, so the full frame 35 equivalent for the fixed two-thirds scarlet is going to be 28 to 224 which is uh, a really good range uh, that's a really I mean I would have preferred maybe a little bit wider but you know these things actually if we're uh, full frame 35 28 equivalent, yeah yeah 28 yeah so essentially that 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 that, that is that is a uh, really nice range so essentially that's going to be like uh, 14 to whatever 112 uh, zoom in in, in two-thirds Land. Yes, Let's yes. Let's not start that. Because the 28s... Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So if you were talking about a, a 5D versus, say, a 7D versus a... Uh, we have the, started that. Okay, sorry. <laughs> okay. Um. <laughs> uh, the other thing was the other question, and also, sorry, first, thanks to Joseph Hudson from, uh, I think, his Scarlet, um, Scarlet User Podcast, I think, and he's uh, for actually posing the questions, and obviously thanks for Red for giving the answers. Uh, the other question was uh, about uh, how far past the, you know, Epic's delivery date we're going to see the two-thirds inch, and basically, well, obviously, basically, it's un- really unlikely we're going to see it in the foreseeable future. Um, it's definitely behind the eight ball. We know that Epic is, um, you know, there's there's issues and there's delays, and uh, obviously, getting Epic out, getting the Super Thirty Five Epic out is the main game. But they are working in the background. I'm, I'm I know that one of the delays are probably going to be getting the focus system sorted I was say, out. Because the comment the on that list is, number ten was that discussion of the autofocus right. and how autofocus video cameras uh, no one thinks it's ever worked like this before and I think that is an area that um, is of particular interest because if you could say in this clip hold focus on this actor click on their face mm. and then it just tracks the face and holds focus yeah. automatically that would be a, an amazing step forward yeah we can't say it's like anything else because I'm sure it's going to be uh, completely new, unique I mean the springboard for it is what you see with the iPhone where you can touch on the screen and it'll go to where you're pointing but uh, they'll be taking it from there so. Now, I think the other piece of news, red-related, that's really uh, pretty huge is the idea that, or not the idea, the announcement that uh, Pirates of the Caribbean 4 is going to be on a, um, 
Oh, Red One. Uh, yeah, Panavised Red One, um, shooting in Hawaii. Um, Panavised Red One, and also 3D, which I'm still trying to get a, a firm tick on that, but uh, I believe it sounds like it's going to be 3D. Is this a different 3D. DOP than the first films? It's the same Darius Wolski, who shot uh, all of the previous um, but he did, pirate films. Did he do Alice in Wonderland? He did Alice in Wonderland. Now that was stereo through mono, if that makes sense. Mm, you put, you're uh, more. I haven't actually seen Alice in Wonderland, I must admit. But this uh, obviously is going to be theoretical. Well, actually, yet to know whether it's actually full stereo or extracted or created in post stereo. I would imagine with all the crap that's been going on with fake stereo and fake 3D. Because if they actually did the right thing, I, I cannot imagine when you see what's involved in shooting a pirates film: water, boats, cranes, action, rigs, stunts, pyro, rain. You know, I can't imagine dragging a three a three D two reds on a three D rig through that. Boats out to sea, horizon shifts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, it's, I think, uh, I think I mean, Alice in Wonderland... I mean, terrific. If it's great, I mean, I quite, I'd, I think I'd love to go and see... I if mean, it's, it's a natural progression, you know, theoretically. Yeah. I, I didn't like... I didn't like uh, some of the volumized 3D stuff we've seen lately. I did like Alice. Mm. Um, and, of course, if Alice was uh, a template for pirates, that would mean for it to work, you'd need tons of CG. Well, guess Actually, what? There's tons guess of CG. What? They usually do that. Although, I mean, part of the... Uh, one of the other things they're sort of saying for this this one is that you know much more limited budget. Uh, Are they? I don't know whether red is necessarily part of that uh, restriction. Really, they're, they're bringing. Uh, it's probably because uh, maybe they're going red because they're is, going three D. Is the cast returning? I mean, is it a? Uh, actually, no. I think I think. God, I haven't got it written here. If, but if I, Johnny Depp isn't in it, no, he's in it. But oh, say, uh, the sad thing is that uh, bloody what's the name is not in it anymore. From Bennett like Beckham. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, I don't. That's what I couldn't see her. Last I checked on the IMDb list, um, I think she was uh, sadly missing. Uh, anyway, we'll see. Maybe four is enough. Once you've done three films on the high seas, I, I am concerned that it'll do a um, Shrek and be a you know a film too far because Shrek's you know really is far far away with four. I mean, really, that's been a box office disappointment given the volume of sort of business it did on the first three. Yeah. Four hasn't done particularly well. Hasn't it? Okay. It's not out here, though, is it? No, no, but it is out in the US. Mm. uh, The other thing which I think is unusual is Rob Marshall directing it. uh, I think he's beautiful, amazing, you know, visual director. Uh, and obviously he's, but I don't know, it's just a different sensibility. I mean, maybe that's where he wants to go. He's Rob Marshall done um, Nine and... Um, Chicago? Chicago. So let me ask you this. Is that not just you stereotyping yes, the director? exactly, as we all get stereotyped for, you know, and so for let me what ask you, you do. The question, he does how? one show tunes kind of film and then that's all he gets given or that's all he gets greenlit. And he so might be busting to do How valid is, is typecasting like that in directors? Uh, well, it's not fair, but you kind of get what you're given, you know, or you, you, you're given what you get. You know, but he's you, got pirates. I assume it's not a musical, so <laughs> it could be. What's that other one? Pirates of Penzance. Yeah, mm. so it's the Pirates, pirates of Penzance, Penzance Caribbean. Pirates, pirates of the Caribbean. Pen, on, no, yeah. Anyway, skip it. But um, here's my question, though. Seriously, like, do you think that um, that that type of typecasting is fair? 
because you're doing it, I would do it expecting you to hit me over the head with a large blunt implement and say... Yeah, I'm, I'm doing exactly what I hate. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. I mean, everybody... I'm sure the grass is always green and whatever you do and whatever kind of films you're used to doing is, is probably you're busting to do something different. Can, can you I'm think sure of a director Paul Greengrass is probably busting to do a beautiful period romantic, comedy, you know, romantic uh, drama and not do um, uh, any more born identities or whatever. Though <laughs> mm. no, he then went and made a born identity that wasn't a born identity. Yes, that's the, true. <laughs> the green zone. Um, okay. That's true. Well, I'm avoiding the answer there. I don't. I don't know. I mean, it's definitely. You know, you kind of if it's what you get known for something, and then people just give you more of that, or you see the scripts for those, and it's it's you know probably hard for, to break out of uh, what people where people see you. It's, perception is you know you get. I mean, even same thing with DPs. They get used to you know you get sort of targeted as oh this guy's great with VFX or he's you know great green screen guy or he's great action guy when they're probably everyone can do lots of things you know but I, I, I mean Rob Marshall I mean he has probably you know slightly more in touch with his feminine side maybe and um, I'm not sure about that I mean did you like Pirates 3 uh, I thought it was unusual I thought it was different I liked it a little bit more than a lot of other people did okay okay as in you didn't like it much. Well, this isn't the VFX show, so I won't go. No, okay. <clears throat> Let's shift gears and talk about gear. Mm, okay. Was um, that all for the news? I think so. I suppose We so. need to go and cover yes, some Red Station news and some software news. Uh, yeah. Um, well, the, um, there's shots out of the... Uh, a few more shots of the SSD module for, Red, for Epic. Have you seen those? The um, 1.8 inch uh, SSD um, module with the 1.8 SSD drive docked into it. The crackpot. <laughs> crackpot. Which uh, I mean, I've, what's odd is that it sticks out. I got to say that's a little bit weird. I mean, one knock from something. If you're hand holding, sprinting through a door, I know you can have handles and things on there. It seems a little bit odd that it sticks out a little bit. It, it's. It, it seems a little odd. I guess but the same as any cable or your hand yeah. or the hand grip or whatever, but it does seem that odd that you're dry. I suppose, yeah, I don't know, that you've got the opportunity to sink that thing right in the body or make it come up from underneath. Um, it does seem a little bit odd that, it, that your drive, your media, can get a whack from the side, I guess. It's, I don't know. Anyway, that's just me. That, that's um, certainly one. I'd wait until we got it in our hands. Yeah, like, absolutely. Look, I'm, extre- I'm sure it's extremely solid, and probably there's no way that you can probably hold the camera and shoot it without actually, you know, and, and really knock it. But uh, anyway, that's that's me. I, mean, I guess I'm so used to this thing all looking linear and all the cards going in and all the cables being hidden and all being sort of nice and small and neat. So, uh, anyway. So uh, anyway, so there's pictures out on Red Station written. pricing. Uh, we have gone through Red Station bef- before. I think with, the, with this module, uh, the uh, SSD module for your Epic is fifteen hundred bucks, and the uh, Red Mag, hundred twenty eight gig, Red Mag is one hundred fifty bucks. That's pretty good. Okay, isn't it? Yes, one hundred twenty eight <laughs> gigs. That gives you a reasonable amount. Of, we're yes. not. We've never. I mean, apart from what size are the red drives at the moment? Uh, well, I can't think of them in hours, so I can't tell you what they are in gigs. Mm. But um, anyway. I can look that up for you. Oh, the good thing is that you know, they're solid state, so you can yep. get on tracking vehicles, steady cams, throw them around, and obviously, I guess if you drop them on the ground, they should be fine. Yeah, should be fine. Um, in software news, uh, Magic Bullets been yeah, doing a lot a couple of, of interesting couple of things stuff. from Magic Bullets. Uh, now, one of them is kind of trivial. It's a plastic bullet, which yeah. is to say a, uh, an iPhone app. But and we've we got to give it a, an iPhone got to give it a plug because I've been using it a lot. It's my default 
Um, you and Bloom and a bunch of other people. Oh, it's just it, it's, uh, for those that don't know, uh, this is Stu's work over at uh, the guys at Magic Bullet, and it's a. Uh, well, I guess the thing is, what are those Russian cameras, the plastic things? Uh, that Holger, Lomo. Yeah. Yeah, and so the old fast plastic. Fantastic. He's the sort of person that fantasised about actually taking the time to shoot with those old plastic cameras <laughs> that had light leak and stuff because you'd get such funky, unusual stuff and never actually had the patience to then get the film developed and go print well, it. My daughter, who's doing photography for high school, she decided to take one of my old... Um, Argus 75, like an old 120-year-old film yeah. camera. And she said, oh, great, I'm going to shoot. I'm doing this thing on the 50s or 40s, and I'm going to take a whole bunch of shots with your camera. I said, well, I have no idea. I was going to do, you know, through the viewfinder, where you actually yep. shoot through the viewfinder to create... You're just using the lens. I have no idea if it even works. So you buy the film, $15, and if first you've got to drive to get the film, then you've got to drive back. And uh, then you put the film in, then you've got to process the film. It's another $15. And then you've got to transfer it to digital. That was another $20 or something. So it's and like for 50, how many shots? 12 <laughs> <laughs> and are they all luckily they all came out but you know, there's none of that gorgeous I was expecting to see because this is a really a simple little click yeah. camera there's a fixed iris so you yeah. can't there's no wide open you yeah. know depth of field there's not a single bloody light leak or fog or nothing it's just for a 1942 box of thing that's been sitting in a sh- on the shelf for it works it, it just it just <coughs> bloody works how, how and I kept thinking look at this thing how and I kept showing this iPhone out look at this I could just I can make it look like this in five seconds she didn't so, want to know so what Jason is indicating is that Plastic Bullet which is this app uh, I don't know how much is it it's a couple of bucks yeah yeah come on on um, iTunes lets you basically take a photo either from your library or from the camera itself and then randomly or sort of semi-randomly give it one of those uh, distorted looks. Well, it's random in the sense that there's a choice of four when you see it and you can pick one you like. Yes, but every time you hit return, it just does a completely different random thing of, of, of softness, light leak, Grey, you know, tint, everything. But so if you see something as you go past, you got to save it because it's never going to come, come again. Okay. It's one in a minute. But, and as fun as that is, it is a bit of a toy. Until they make a high-res version that deals with high-res pictures. Yeah, um, iPad. Hint, hint. Um, what I and I say hint, I mean I'm hinting that you should do it, not hinting that it's coming out. Um, what's more serious and I think actually really, really useful is the work Magic Bullet's been doing with Grinder. <laughs> yeah, so Grinder is a uh, now probably Mike, you can probably take us through the difference. Well, there's definitely um, obviously one of the main questions is um, why use this first over the um, EOS. Uh, the EOS plugin, I think it's it's called. The EOS so this is basically plugin. a multi-threaded uh, conversion engine that will allow you to convert your, say, five D files into other formats. It's a dedicated app that just does what it does very well, but it does it very quickly because it's well uh, threaded for uh, whatever station you're on. It's a, a Mac app only, I believe, at the moment. Excuse <clears throat> me. And um, this app is uh, is a processor. It's like a pour in one end, out pops the other end, um, your material. And one of the side benefits it does without any kind of motion compensation or adjustment is that if you've shot something at a higher frame rate but you want it to play back at a normal frame rate, thus giving you slow-mo, it will do that. So in other words, exactly. if I shot something at 60, I want it to play back at 24 to get what is effectively you know, two and a half times slow-mo. Um, you have to convert that. Otherwise, when you try playing it back on your laptop, it just plays it back at 60 frames a second. And yeah. a second of, of screen time is a second of real life, and you don't want that. And so that's one of the things that this app will do for you. Now, that, as I say, is not doing any kind of motion interpolation. It's just simply fixing up the file. Changing the time base. Yeah, mm, but, you exactly. know, if you're a photographer, you want tools that just do what they do. And... Uh, 
I think the other thing it'll do is if you're, I mean, if you've shot, obviously, as you would with a 5D, say you've got 1080p footage, and if you want to edit into something a little bit more simpler than that, it'll create proxy files. Mm -hmm. uh, so it'll actually create two files, I think, um, and it will do a proxy and uh, create ProRes or... Uh, now, I have not uh, had it long enough to do a proper no, filter. No, we, will, we so will, will do a proper filter. Yeah, we will it. do a proper, proper, proper overview of it later. But um, And with that proxy, you can burn in time code, so you can actually have time code burnt into the clip and... and uh, choose the timecode format and everything. So it's, that, uh, That's all true. I haven't played with that bit of it yet, and certainly uh, we will review it. And also, you need to know how well things transcode, because um, there's you know transcoding and there's transcoding, and we'll do some comparative tests with it. Yeah, exactly. And it, I mean, it's really just the fact that it's just simple. It's drag and drop. Once you set it up, it's one button push, and it looks for your files wherever, wherever they be. The Final Cut Pro plugin is very, very keen on seeing them in your card rather than uh, actually, you know, what you probably should be doing is immediately copying off your card, get rid of your card, and then start working with your footage. So it's a little bit more, a little bit more a pro in that sort of uh, approach, I guess. Now, so thank you, Magic Bullet, for those two. We'll come, we'll, we'll, again, we'll touch on grind a little bit further once we've had a bit more of a play. <laughs> so now, uh, um, that brings us to the end of gear news. And what I'm gonna do now is uh, cross over to an interview that we recorded earlier. Um, with the guys with the high-speed camera. Now, there are basically two high-speed cameras, as far as I'm concerned, in the world that are of real uh, impact right now, uh, the Phantom and the Weisscam. Um, I say Weisscam because traditionally when you're pronouncing German words with a W at the front, you pronounce the W as a V, but if you're trying to use it, look it up on the web, it would be W-E-I-S-S-C-A-M. And Jess, I was lucky enough to um, actually get with uh, Aki, who's uh, the regional sales guy for uh, PS Technica, um, and uh, we had a play with the camera and also I uh, got to talk to him about some of the things that we uh, did with it. So, Aki, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. Hello. We're really keen to talk about the, uh, the new camera uh, and we wanted to get uh, some ideas on workflow. But before we do that, let's discuss how the camera is set up in terms of just the cinematography. So we're talking about a sensor that's the size of 35. It's a Super 35 single CMOS sensor. Um, the camera is a full production camera. Um, it can be used as a completely normal camera. Uh, it is a raw camera. That means that you are producing a, in high quality mode, you are producing a digital reversal. So now this is able to run at high speed, of course. That's going to be slightly dependent on the uh, frame size, of course, because of the bandwidth. So what are we talking about when we, it's, it's, its highest resolution is 2K? It's 2K. Um, then the highest frame rate in 2K is 1,000 frames per second. In HD, it's 2,000 frames, and in 720, we are talking about 4,000 frames. So while it's not specifically designed for PL mount lenses in the sense that you have your universal mount on there, it is designed for what we might think of as film lenses, film gear, film setup. Exactly. Everything from the 35mm uh, family is fitting on the camera. We are talking about lenses, we are talking about lens support, we are talking about uh, electronical devices like monitors, like uh, lens control systems. Um, we are talking about powering. Um, the, you can use uh, the batteries from your uh, familiar rental house to work the camera with. Okay, so let's say I wanted to do some uh, work, high speed, a uh, thousand frames. Walk me through how I would set that up because what's the ISO that I'm going to be shooting at um, and where does the data go? What's the... Okay, um, 
when you go in for 1,000 frames, let's see highest resolution, um, you capture from the CMOS sensor a monochrome image into a 32 gigabyte RAM buffer inside the camera. Okay. Um, the RAM buffer takes uh, a little bit more than 12,000 frames and uh, stores it. Um, there are uh, two modes uh, to, to operate the RAM buffer. It's a ring buffer, so you have always a live image, or you have a sequence mode, so uh, you're familiar with start-stop uh, yep. uh, 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 to your scene. Um, then you have an instant replay from the RAM buffer with no waiting time, no rendering time. You can really see right away what you have and decide if you want to take it or if you want to uh, put it to the garbage. Okay, so at this point, these are raw files. So you must have some kind of debayering board in the camera. Exactly. To we have a debayering board in the camera, uh, which offers you to uh, create uh, different lookup tables, which are free programmable by the hand unit, which the complete camera is operated with. So you have no computer on the set anymore. Um, and you can create uh, 16 different lookup tables from daylight, tungsten, bleach bypass, whatever you like. So now your raw files, these ones that at the moment are sitting in our buffer, um, did you say that was 32 gig? Or is it going up to 64? It's, it's um, uh, 36 gigabyte RAM 36 buffer. Gig, okay. So that's sitting there and, and they're raw files. I can debayer those, but I also have the ability to take the files out of the camera as either what, HD or RAW? Exactly, simultaneously. Okay. So you have uh, two possibilities. You have a uh, completely uncorrupted 12-bit uh, uncompressed RAW file, yep. which you can lay off in our digital magazine. Yep. Uh, and you have a very good um, onset monitoring for all the um, people who are doing decisions on the set, what they want to have to take or what they do not want to have to have, um, or you are in a complete HD workflow um, where you have uh, the possibility to um, record your uh, video stream on a normal 422 device. Okay, so if we imagine for a second that there's a 422 HD that I could put onto an SR deck, there's also the possibility of taking your RAW files off as RAW in HD. Now explain that, because that's quite separate to just <coughs> plugging in an SR deck and recording the HD signals. Yeah. The mapping is that we transport two RAW files in one HD frame. The advantage is um, when you transport RAW files via IT interfaces, you have, do not have professional interfaces, and the download rate is always depending on what the computer does in the background. Right. So the download rate is always uh, um, incoherent. So, so you're using a, an HD pipe, but instead of putting an HD frame in each slot that's allocated for a frame, you're putting your raw data, and it just so happens you can fit two of them in the, in the slot. Exactly. Okay. So you have double download speed and a constant data rate. So, of course, if I was to record that signal, I could record it on an SR deck, but I wouldn't expect that SR deck to be able to play back pictures that I could look at because it's just acting now as a data recorder. So there must be some way of being able to take a debayer board like the one that's in the camera and use that in post-production so I can actually look at those pictures and, and reconvert them back to usable pictures. Exactly. At the moment, um, uh, uh, maybe a little misunderstanding, the raw data cannot, laid off, uh, uh, cannot be laid off in an SRW1. 
Oh, okay. This is so not possible. So the so even though you're putting HD signals as containers to put your raw data, yeah. you can't actually record that to a deck. Exactly. We're using okay. only the the HD stream as a uh, as a uh, transport as a as a cabling as a fast okay. transport possibility. So what is at the end that is going to record that signal? That's going to is that just your uh, magazine? When you go, when you go on the on 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 an SRW one, you have a four to two HD SDI. Raw data can only be stored on our digital magazine. Okay. Can I get it onto a hard drive still in the raw format, or does it always get converted from your magazine to a, uh, a debayed picture? Or can I get it from that magazine, still in raw format, undebayed to my hard drive for a computer? Yes, but you need a computer to, uh, to uh, transport the data. Okay, so I've moved the data now from, from my RAM to your magazine. Exactly. Then and you I take have now the two magazine, choices. Then right. you take the magazine into the, into the post-production or at home, um, connect it to your computer. The magazine is uh, recognized as a normal hard drive. And then you download on your computer, do with our uh, software a uh, debiring, give the color information, and uh, then render it out as TIFFs, as DPX or DNGs. So now those files at that point, are they looking like a uh, single uh, one, well, I guess it's two frames per one file, or is it one huge bundled six gig individual file? How does it it's look? An, uh, every frame you're, you're capturing here is an individual file. Okay, so I have a, a series of basically a frame sequence yeah. In raw format, exactly, and then I would use either your software or any third party. There is uh, the softwares of Iridas are um, sufficient to work with our stuff, and with uh, this software, you can render it out in any format you like. Right. So at this point now, I've got it in raw. I could archive that if I wanted to worry about you know coming back to it later, exactly. or I can then take that in as either the uh, HD, obviously off the magazine, in the much exactly the same way as I could have tapped in the camera or I can just take the raw files and process them and, and workflow through exactly. after that. Make okay. your grading and all your stuff, and when you go for, uh, for raw in 2K, it's absolutely cinema quality. Well, let's talk about color spaces, because if I obviously am coming out raw, don't have to worry about uh, color balance and color spaces yet, but if I'm taking taps off either the magazine or the camera, presumably you're going into what, Rec. 709? Or? Rec. 709 is coming out from the HD. Okay, so the HD that's coming out from the camera, it's full broadcast quality, full... Full paintable quality. And, and so let's say I was shooting at uh, 2K in my example. I've got 1,000 frames a second 2K. Am I going to get out an image that is cropped on the HD or does it have letterboxing or do I have a choice? Uh, you have a choice. You can uh, also have, for instance, a HD RAW because the format which you uh, decide to have uh, you, you decide it directly from the sensor. Yep. And then you decide where you play it out. You play it out from the, uh, on the raw pipeline or you play it out on the HD pipeline. But if I've shot 2K and I then choose to, say, use the magazine to play out um, uh, and debayer, what's coming out of that? Is it a, it, presumably it's going to be an HD signal that comes out with either... No? No, it's a 100% 2K 4x3 raw image. Okay. We only use the HD frame as a container. But if I was playing it out from the camera, there's an HD simultaneous with the data record. In 2K mode, what am I seeing on the HD signal? Um, 422 HD. And is that cropped or letterboxed? It's uh, cropped. 
Okay, so I would have effectively like a safe, when I was thinking about 2K, if I wanted to use the, and have like it's a, a like safe. It's a safe mode, yes. Okay, and so now I've got the, uh, the material in there. How fast can I transfer stuff around? We, we mentioned a moment ago that you could get two frames per HD, so I presume that's twice real time. Exactly. And what about transferring stuff uh, otherwise? Is, where is the sort of like the bottleneck, if there is one, in my workflow? Where do I need to think about um, planning out my shoot? Uh, the bottleneck is at the moment that we are the only ones who transport raw data in an HD container. So the play out from the magazine into a, uh, a workstation and the post-production still has to go over a fiber channel. Right, so that this would give me... This is the fastest. This is 1, 1, uh, 1 to 1.5, depending what the uh, computer does in the background. Okay, so I've, I've shot a sequence that turned into... Uh, a minute of footage because obviously yes. it's, it's slow-mo <laughs> then it might take me less than a minute to actually transfer that to a workstation if I was going by a fiber channel a little bit a little bit more than than 13 minutes yeah. for uh, depending on what uh, the computer does okay and then if I was transferring is there anything else other than can you do firewire or anything firewire 400 is also possible but That's this is unfor unfortunately a night shift for somebody <laughs> so now uh, the chip is uh, a CMOS chip and yet you're shooting very, very high frame rates. Tell me about the shutter. Um, we are using a global shutter and not a rolling shutter. Oh, okay. Um, so it's uh, compared, uh, comparable to a stills camera, so you always have one complete exposure of the whole sensor. Which would be good for doing 3D work as well, I imagine. This is, first of all, Stereo good for, for 3D. And as soon as you have um, straight lines in the image, um, with a rolling shutter, they get bent. Um, we don't have those. Sure. So if we had a stereo rig, obviously normally that, that works with an offset mirror. Yep. Uh, if you've got rolling shutter, you have to be careful because you don't want one camera rolling left and one camera rolling right. Exactly. But if you've got a global shutter, you're literally just snapping it and so everything will line up. Properly. Exactly. Exactly. And the cameras can be synced so there is uh, no uh, frame delay. So. What is the resolution of the sensor? Because I'm concerned, am I going to get any kind of aliasing? Is it sampling at only 2K or is it sampling higher than that and down-resing to 2K? Um, the readout and the camera, as we do it as a standalone version, is complete 2K. Um, the sensor size is square. So if you want to uh, shoot on, uh, with a computer, operate the camera and capture the data with a computer, you read out the full sensor and then you have still a, uh, can uh, shift your point of interest. Okay, but the uh, main sensor data that I'd be getting for 2K is sampled at 2K and, yep. and the sense. Because the, the images look really good. I mean, for a debayed uh, clip, I'm not seeing aliasing. I'm, I'm not getting chromatic aberrations. I mean, the, the debayering and the resolution seem terrific in terms of some of the, like we saw some water shots before, the fine mist and stuff. Yep. And so that seems to be holding up really, really well. Tell me, where are people using the camera then? Where, what are some of the applications that you've seen used? Um, we have... Um Clients shooting normal commercials, all these milk stuff, shampooing stuff, uh, everything where you have want to have uh, some some uh, high speed. What we completely did not aim for is wildlife photography. Oh, really? Because it's it's able to run off batteries, you can exactly. First of all, it's able to run off batteries. You have an instant replay. You have a uh, uh, four to two paintable output. We have clients recording in a uh, small convergent nano flash. 
Um, they're using uh, B4 mounted lenses, zoom lenses. Um, we have a colored viewfinder, so uh, you have also a uh, good framing. You see what happens. It's not a, a black and white viewfinder. Um, and it's the camera camera is not that heavy so that you do not uh, are not able to carry it uh, quickly from one place to another. And how does it work in terms of heat? Because obviously uh, if you're going outdoors, is it okay with heat? And um, if I was out in a less than optimum studio environment? Yeah. Uh, a CMOS sensor always has to be linearized and uh, this uh, takes place at a certain temperature. We linearize at 50 degrees because our normal clients were uh, clients do, doing uh, commercials in a studio. Um, it's uh, warm enough for that. Um, the linearization with 50, 50 degrees means that every, every um, pixel gets 100% uh, black at that temperature. So the camera, uh, the sensor works best at 50 degrees. When the sensor temperature is 50 degrees plus minus 5 degrees. Um, when the camera is getting hotter, you have to cool it down. When the camera is getting cold, when you are in a cold environment, you have to wrap it somehow. So it's it's pretty um, very quiet. Is there a fan that kicks in when it gets? There is a fan on the back of the camera, and on the side of the cameras are the outputs um, uh, to cool the sensor down. And is that a sealed chamber passing through, or does it actually? Do you have to worry about dust going up into the, uh, the electronics? Um, we didn't have an issue like that. Uh, we had clients uh, shooting in Tanzania with 55 degrees outside temperature, still paintable HDSDI output. Um, the same client shooting in northern Finland a couple of uh, weeks ago with minus 20 degrees. He had to wrap the camera to warm it up. If the camera does not take the uh, uh, working temperature, the sensor does not take the working temperature, you just close the back, the entry of the, uh, of the cooling air and uh, see how it works, uh, warms up. So what's best practice? Should I be black balancing each day? I mean, what's the, if I was, you know, hiring the camera, because obviously I might hire it from a rental house, yeah. um, what would be my onset best practice? Um, we have uh, three modes uh, of black reference in the camera. We have uh, an off mode, which you can use when you are outside shooting ambient light. Uh, then you always have enough information in the blacks, um, so you do not need to make a black setting. Uh, when you are in studio uh, or uh, for sports, uh, we have two modes, a manual mode and an auto mode. The auto mode gives a black on the image that the sensor sees at the moment and gives them a black reference. Okay. Um, when you do it manually, uh, it's a little bit more controlled, depending on what you want. And uh, in terms of how the gammas and stuff are working in this, presumably um, you are just applying a Rec. 709 gamma and stuff to this as well. Is there anything there that you could advise about how to shoot so as to you know, give yourself a bit of room in grading? I mean, do you like to have the black levels up a little bit? Anything? Yes, uh, every CMOS sensor reacts in a, with a complete black uh, as no information and the electronic wants to put some information. I is there an electronic gain on the sensor? Um, yes. Right, okay. But you, we can control it. Okay. We can adjust it, so you can adjust the complete gamma curve. But, I'm, but I take it from your remark then that you think it's a good idea to give at least something in the black. Exactly, and pull it down in the post-production. Okay. 
Well, look, it's a really impressive camera. Um, I guess it's primarily aimed at the professional rental market. Is that right? I mean, they're, yes. They're, how much are they to, for a rental house to uh, invest in a system? Um, we have to talk about uh, for a complete uh, system, camera, hand unit, digital magazine. You have to calculate something like uh, three hundred thousand uh, Aussie dollars. Okay, and then of course that would just translate out with uh, what you wanted to do for your package and your lenses exactly. from the, the house. Exactly. And in terms of maintenance and stuff, I mean, it seems like this camera, maybe over the first one, is more rugged. Is it got more sort of build quality for? Um, sort of production environment, this feels like it's... Absolutely yes, absolutely yes. Um, uh, the camera, the first cameras were tested by a large US rental house, Claremont Camera. They got serial numbers one and two to ride them really up to the edges. Yeah. And um, they used uh, four really very good uh, and very experienced high-speed DOPs. And they were happy. Excellent. Well, look, thank you very much for taking time to talk to us. Thank really you for it. coming back. Thanks, mate, and thank you, Aki, for um, taking the time. That was terrific, mate. Um, so, can you take me through the HD? Yeah, it's a bit feed confusing, wasn't it? Yeah, um, it's this simple that it's not everything you want it to be, um, but it, it's a good idea. They, they've got a feed coming out of the camera. You want that feed to be able to be used in a production environment because they made this camera the Mark II as opposed to the Mark I. Be like, if you're playing with it, it's like just much more rugged. You know what I mean? Like, you probably don't get this from the audio interview that I just played you, but it, it is kind of robust and sounds and feels and looks and is kind of got proper professional nuts and bolts. Mm. Okay, so they said, okay, now we need to have data out for this feed, and what's it going to be? And of course, you could put like a Firewire 800 cable on it. Well, the trouble with doing anything like that is none of that stuff is what you and I would call on-set production yeah. capable. Yeah. And so somebody came up with a bright idea, well, why don't we just stick a uh, HD-SDI cable in because they're you know, proper bayonet kind of serious-looking cables. Because that's one thing Phantom have really got nailed, I think, with the next the last two set of cameras has been the on-set quick playback and you know all that, that whole side yeah. of things. Well, these guys are uh, you know, similarly kind of set up, but the sure. thing about this is that it's not normally the case that when I want to connect data to my laptop or something, I'm using a video cable. But what they've done is they've set up a video cable, but instead of shoving video down it, it pretends that they're video files. You know what I like to refer to as like a cuckoo nest approach. But actually, if you were to look in the nest, in the frame, they've stuffed the data of two frames. And so what you're doing is you're saying to the video cabling router that you've got at your facility, hey, this is, mm. you know, nice video. We're going to send you down the signal and the all the routers and everything else route that video like normal but if you were to put them up on a monitor you'd get just noise because what's in the frames are um, just a bunch of raw data hence are no good now what's a problem uh, for me in that is that that sounds perfect if I could then plug an SR deck and hit record yeah as you might have heard um, you can't do that you can't just record it to an SR deck it does record to their HD recorder mm. but then it starts to become for me anyway well you've got all this trouble to make it a video source isn't that actually murphy's law opening the door to somebody thinking that they can record it successfully yeah some device that would record video successfully would record it only to later discover that you can't play it back because yeah it didn't record video it rather it recorded video but it had like as a, a classic sr deck does two to one compression and it destroyed your data yeah um and they would argue well that's a stupid thing to do and i'd say well like so when was the last time you were on set and someone didn't do something stupid um so what you end up with is an HD pipe that can only be connected to their HD recorder, 
Um, so yes, it's convenient that you can use sort of off-the-shelf cables, but that's a bit like saying, you know, you can use standard nuts and bolts on your F1, you know, Formula One car. It's sure. like, well, <laughs> everything great. else is non-standard, but great that you can use standard bolts. I really like that you didn't have to get, you know... Um, and it is true, it would be annoying to get expensive uh, custom bolts for your Formula One car, but quite frankly, if you go into all the trouble of a Formula One car, do you really care? But anyway, um, so that's what that is. So I don't think it's a bad product, and I think it's stupid. I mean, all it's of just, this is, I mean, it's like, it's like you know, it's, like nitp- it's nitpicking, really. I mean, because this is, oh, all of these are just, everything. it's just fantastic to get. I mean, it's, I still, I know, I crap on about this every time, but I still revel in the fact that we can do these fantastic speeds with, with relative pain compared to, you know, the film days. That, that is true, and it, look, it's a nice-looking signal, and uh, and I like it. Yeah. Um, but look, I'm not going to give you the exact numbers, but I'm, it, it's in the order of you know dozens of these cameras, and they're hoping to sell a few hundred of them, mm. and that's it. Like this is not a market that's going to be you know fifteen thousand yeah, cameras. This is a specialist market. Extremely expensive, no doubt. And well, they're ex- they are expensive, um, but it's just not that many people need to shoot. No, that's right. It's um, not. It's not exactly. You can't flood the market with these things because it's not really something you just go out and shoot a dialogue spot with it today, and then go and shoot high-speed milk pouring tomorrow. And these guys, as many of the other companies, are very quick to say you can shoot the rest of your whole production with this as just a normal camera. But I've got to tell you, it's a pretty bulky normal camera, and I don't see that you would. Yeah, I would honestly see you do a seven-day shoot. The last day is a pouring shot where you're trying yeah. to have bits of uh, giant oversized almond fall into a oversized pouring chocolate shot, and and in the process of doing that, uh, get you know the beauty shot that dissolves to the pack logo. And days one to six, you've got a whatever red or phantom on set, and then yeah. day seven is the pouring shot, and you get the specialist camera out. I, I'm sorry, I just that's how I would play it. So is the file format, do you think, the way they're doing it, better, worse than the Phantom side of things? Because um, they're, both, they're both, obviously, you're dealing with a ton of data and you're dealing yeah. with a ton of pro- post-processing. I, look, I think the, the, the bottom line is that uh, it seems to me the Phantom is further along and having other people being able to read Phantom files. The Cine files, which are the Phantom files, mm. are read by more than just... Um, the Iridus and their own software, which is the case with this camera. It's only read by Iridus and their own software. Right. Uh, I, I think it's a good workable workflow, but having said that, you know, what you really want, what these guys would love, as Phantom totally loved, is other colour grading companies to say, hey, yeah. just give us your cine files and we'll yeah, decode well, them in real time. And yeah. it's as Red a- did, as anybody else did. I mean, never before, I think, have we had been so desperate as a camera company, or have camera companies been so desperate to have grading companies come to the party and Implement the trouble is you need to get a critical mass before it's worth having the, the guys at Baselight or at, at you know wherever. Because um, it's a similar deal to Red, really, in a, in a way that I've, we've, heard, we've all heard just as many horror phantom post stories yeah. as there have been you know Red issues. So but the if more you knew what you're doing, and this is definitely if you know what you're doing, then these are great cameras that produce very original, arresting, mm-hmm. visually mm-hmm. interesting shots. Oh, it's gorgeous! But you know it's not for amateur hour this is like hardcore professional yeah this is not um, around with your not kids the kind cameras. of thing you drag down to a sea pool so. no, well no you would if you're doing a really interesting documentary look this thing's the size of like a I don't know it's not as big as a you know a Mac tower mm. but it's a lot bigger than a laptop bigger than a Phantom it is bigger than a Phantom definitely mm. it's about twice the physical size of the Phantom mm. I guess okay Hey, um, can I just pick up on some things that we said in earlier episodes, not by way of apology, though I'm happy to apologise if we got it wrong, but more by way of just um, uh, um, 
clarification. Yeah. So when we're talking about the low-pass filtering stuff, and here's the thing, guys. You, you guys know this. Jason and I obviously are not tra- trained radio uh, journalists. <laughs> if we were, we wouldn't um and ah, but we are dedicated to trying to eliminate where we can and, and inform where we can, but we are working unscripted. So sometimes when we're talking, uh, surprise, surprise, we don't go back and, you know, read do take after take after take to get Very it Very occasionally the odd bit of incorrect stuff sneaks through. It sneaks through, through yeah. And mm. it's more normally like it is today where it, um, we're just explaining, like, we sometimes don't understand things and we're more than happy to not understand them, but also, you know, we're not the manual. So <laughs> it's probably not a good idea to take every single word as gospel, uh, though it's kind that you do. And we do get emails from people uh, pointing out things that uh, may be wrong. And so we really do actually genuinely appreciate you saying that. I'm not being sarcastic in the slightest because... We are speaking um, without a script, and so consequently we can make things uh, sound incorrect. And that's what we did, apparently. I certainly did, apparently, when I was talking about the low-pass filter um, in the red. I think I made it sound like I was saying that the low-pass filtering itself, as a function of low-pass filtering, is doing IR filtering. Right. And what I was trying to say was the the low-pass... There's a piece of thing in front of the sensor that has a coding, which is IR, which is knocking IR out. Yep. So the thing in front of the sensor, um, and so whether it's the coating on the low-pass filter, it's the coating on the sensor, or it's the coating on the plastic in front of the sensor, in front of the low, whatever, Mm. I I was trying not to delineate. I'm just trying to say there is a thing in front of the lens, which is that, and some people pointed out, that a low-pass filter in itself inherently doesn't do any actual IR. Infrared. It's actually there more for anti-aliasing reasons, right? Exactly. If you wind up the aliasing to the maximum... Sorry, you wind up the resolution to the maximum that you can get for a um, a uh, red-type sensor, then you're going to get an aliasing artifact. And look, there's there's a... Yeah. Well, so aren't you interesting how it does it? I mean, is it just a slight softening? I'm wondering what it, what what the anti-aliasing filter. Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Have it. Well, <laughs> no, is it a slight diffusion? It must be. I mean, because obviously in post, when you see aliasing, mm-hmm. one thing you kill it is just by taking a bit of the sharpness off or rotating yeah. it. Yeah. Okay, so generally in signal processing, a low-pass filter isn't an optical filter. A low-pass filter in in um, in sampling theory is uh, like a Fourier transform. So what happens is you yeah. move data from the Base image domain. Off. I think musically it's like, you know, yeah, it's a rumble filter. It's kind of like a low-pass filter is uh, actually taking, rolling the top off. Anyway, shutting up. Go ahead. No, no that's what it is. Okay, yeah. no, that's a very good analogy. So, so what normally happens in signal processing is you move a signal into the frequency domain. So this is all based on this guy who is very, very cool, um, who's called Fourier, Fourier, who said, hey, did you know that if you've got anything that repeats in terms of a sort of a waveformy, siney, wavy, wobbly line that repeats, you could actually reduce it to a series of sines and cosines where all we need to know is its magnitude and its offset in time. And if you did that, you could reduce any signal down to a bunch of other discrete individual component signals. And each one of those, if you sort of added them all up, would give you a line. So let's say you imagine you drew a... When I say drew, I mean mathematically it came out of a signal, but drew a wobbly line, that, but it did repeat, right? Yep. It was a cyclical kind of um, pattern to it. And then you just simply say, oh, okay, well, that might be 13, that might be 10, that might be three different sine or cos waves so that when added together give you that master thing. And, of course, some of them would be of different um, offsets and stuff, but there you go. And so once you do that, you reduce something that's in the image domain to what's called the frequency domain. There's a million things you can do, but the most obvious one is this. If you were to take stuff to the frequency domain and then throw away the high frequencies, the stuff that you or I can't even see, 
uh, and then go back again to the image domain, you'd have just taken out the high buzz, the, the aliasing crap. And right. if you take throw off out enough of the data, when you go to the frequency domain and come back, all you're left with is the soft, bigger waves, which is basically a defocused picture. So it isn't necessarily... Uh, like generally speaking in audio or in vision low pass filtering is not a function of softening defocusing or but having said that you can get a defocus effect by running a low pass filter that throws away the high frequencies and just leaves you the low uh, frequencies and that would be a classic Gaussian blur looking kind of um, image right um, the other one I wanted to comment when on you think of, when you say Fourier I always think of what uh, in the old the, the Fairlight CMI I don't know if you know the old Fairlight mm-hmm. used to have a Fourier display I'm pretty sure that's the screen it used to be they used to put it on bloody film clips all the time they used to show this sort of fantastic um, it's almost like a sound wave but a t-shirt? Re- oh I don't know yeah oh the Joy Division t-shirt was the Fourier display from a CMI Jesus okay <laughs> okay but yeah, that was well, always. I've always seen it. you could get in there with a light pen and uh, adjust the the, um, the uh, sound waves for okay. each frequency. <laughs> anyway, transmission, right? The cover of transmission, Showing which is the classic, now. the classic T-shirt as worn in um, Five Hundred Days of Summer. Anyway, so look, um, my point about this is that. Uh, that uh, I don't know what my point is. I have no point. Actually, I'm going to move on. There was another thing that came up uh, like that over um, a point you made earlier, which was now you've completely thrown me as to what. But it, yeah, there you go. There's the you've come. He's found the unknown pleasures. Yep, that's Joy Division t-shirt. kind of like the yeah the Fairlight Fourier display. You could get in there with a light pen and tweak all those little frequencies. Yeah, like that was a sensible thing to do. Um, <laughs> but hey, like uh, Fourier transforms is the most significant piece of cool stuff that anyone invented in a long time. Like Fourier is beyond helpful there is almost no part of signal processing in the world and I'm talking audio video anything Mm. that doesn't you know lay at the feet of Fourier and go man that was a cool idea Um, which is why we spend so much time making fast Fourier transforms because it's just so frigging important to get it happening quickly in a computer so you're saying, hang on, so you're saying there is an optical no, low-pass filter? No, I just went filter? into a rat hole over okay. low-pass filters. And right, because there's low-pass filters and then there's optical low-pass yeah, filters. Yeah, and there's and probably just an optical low-pass filter at the front of the reds. I'm just was talking to you about right. very uh, interesting about Mr. Fourier's piece of Excellent work. stuff about filters. <laughs> of course. Anyway, um, that's it for this week. Other than to do our Twitter shout-out, um, Jace, I actually wanted to do one which I'm stunned we haven't done earlier. Yes, it's a, um, a miss. My uh, co-founder partner, one of uh, two of FX Guide, uh, is, of course... Jeff Huser. Now, Jeff has a neon Marg tag on Twitter. The reason this is actually, you can actually see a picture of it. It's actually a real bloody great neon margarita. sign of a margarita yeah, on his back porch out near his barbecue. He likes margaritas. Hey, a man after my own heart, and he drinks uh, really good, really fucking good tequila. Anyway, um, so it's a slash neon Marg. And, uh, but not only that, but he's actually a really, like, because Jeff is a, feature film and uh, commercials, very, very high senior compositor and VFX supervisor. But he actually also is a stunningly good photographer. And if you actually go to his, yes, um, his Flickr feed. Mm. Yeah, and his Twitter feed and his Flickr feed as well. Uh, because he's he's just got... A, he's a Nikon shooter, but he has just really great photography. So um, his blog is worth checking out because it's got a lot of stuff relevant to the industry. His uh, photos are really worth checking out. And if you... Um, yeah, if you, I actually look at his blog every day. It's, it's, a, it's a cracker. Yep, so follow him on uh, Twitter, twitter.com slash neonmarg. And his uh, blog is neonmarg.tumblr.com, as in T-U-M-B-L-R. 
www.ghostbusters.com when it was trendy to lose letters to get URLs. Um, and uh, that's it for this that's week. That's it. Yes, thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. As always, uh, feedback, let us know what you think. Uh, any admissions, errata, red at fxguide.com. Yeah, we, we like getting emails. And Jace, where do people follow you? Uh, you can get me on Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash wingrove or, or jasonwingrove.com. And you, Mike? I'm Mike Seymour on Twitter, but honestly, the best place to find me is over at fxguide or fxphd. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us, red at fxguide.com. Copyright 2010, FX Guide, LLC.